So welcome back again to the second part of our podcast here on Come and See Inspirations. My name is John Keeley, still joined by Shane Ambrose. Now we can listen to Father Adrian Craffey lead us in part one of his reflection on the Acts of the Apostles. This will be followed by a short piece of music, Taze music. It's the Taze Alleluia. So let's listen to Father Adrian. One of the great gifts of the Easter season is the book called The Acts of the Apostles. We read it throughout Easter, from Easter Sunday all the way through the 50 days of Easter, culminating on the Feast of Pentecost. And for me it's a sign that He's just really here. And perhaps uh, rather remarkably, the first reading we have from the Acts is on uh, Sunday morning, on Easter Sunday morning, as the first reading. And it's from chapter 10. Chapter 10 of the Acts of the Apostles, where we hear about the visit of Peter to the house of Cornelius. And we hear his announcing what is called the kerygma, the basic Christian proclamation, and proclaiming, we, Peter and his companions, we are witnesses to everything that happened. They killed him by hanging him on a tree. Yet on the third day, God raised him to life and allowed him to be seen. This is the message, the basic kerygma, the basic message about Jesus. He was put to death. or Sometimes you put him to death, but God raised him. And notice that God raised him. That's the most ancient form, most ancient way of speaking of the resurrection. God, the Father, raised, using the Greek verb egero, God raised Jesus. Of course, other ways we have also Jesus rose from the dead. But the, the, the primitive way, God raised Jesus from the dead. And then Peter says, we are witnesses to everything that is crucial in this book. It's the book of the witnesses of the risen Christ. If we go back to the end of the Gospel of Luke, remember Luke and Acts belong together, written by, by Luke, 2448 in the gospel. I'm sending upon you what the Father has promised. Stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And you are to go out with that power and to preach. The beginning of the Acts of the Apostles in chapter 1. Jesus will say something very similar. You are witnesses. You'll receive the power of the Holy Spirit and you will be witnesses.
Now this book is called Acts, in Greek, Praxis. Now I think you probably know that the titles that the books, some books are given, are not the titles which the writer necessarily gave them. The titles of the Gospels, the Gospel according to Mark, Matthew, Luke, and in particular this case, Praxis Ton Apostolon, the Acts of the Apostles. The first evidence we have of this title is in the second century from St. Irenaeus. And there's a reason why we can say fairly confidently that Luke did not give this title to his work. It's that for Luke, apostle was reserved for the twelve, those chosen by Jesus. For Luke, uh, he does not include Paul in that. And given that certainly half of the Acts of the Apostles is dominated by Paul, uh, it seems unlikely that Luke would have called this book the Acts of the Apostles. There are in fact only two uh, occasions in chapter 14 where Barnabas and Paul are referred to as apostles in this text. Of course, Paul himself is very keen to say he is an apostle. You go to the letter to the Romans, chapter 1, verse 1, called to be an apostle. He's no less an apostle than the others. That's another, another issue. So what does Luke himself have to say about this work? At the beginning of Acts, he refers to his first work, his first word, his protos logos, reading from the Revised New Jerusalem Bible. In my earlier work, Theophilus, I wrote about everything Jesus began to do and teach from the beginning. The Greek of that is the protos logos. That was his first word, his first writing, the gospel. And we know that at the beginning of the gospel, the gospel of Luke, we have a very long introduction. Luke says that many others have already written accounts of the things that have happened. And once again, as with Acts, it's dedicated to Theophilus. Theophilus means lover of God. And there is the question, is this a particular person called Theophilus? Or is it uh, written, are, these, are both these books written for all those who love God, who want to come closer to God through Jesus Christ? And in those opening verses of the Gospel, uh, he, at verse 4, chapter 1 of the Gospel of Luke, he talks about wanting people to know the trustworthiness, the asphaleia of what is being reported. And he has the same intention in Acts. He's intent, Luke on linking the events with history, with historical people. For example, there's reference to the Emperor Claudius. Uh, there's reference to Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia. And quite fascinating that through Luke and Acts, there are references to the generations of the Herod dynasty, Herod the Great, in chapter 1 of Luke. 
Herod Antipas, his son, chapter 3 of Luke. But then when we get into Acts, we have Herod Agrippa I in Acts chapter 12. And Herod Agrippa II in chapter 25. So Luke is linking uh, the events to the secular power, Roman power, to the power in Palestine. And uh, also he names, as we'll see, several high priests. These things did not happen in a dark corner. That's what Paul in chapter 26, verse 26, will say to Agrippa and to the governor, the Roman governor Festus, these things he's been talking about they didn't happen in a dark corner and it's the purpose of acts to proclaim these events which happened in the real world at a real time with real people and were the beginning of the church the beginning of the proclamation of the gospel of jesus christ so if we go to the very beginning of acts remember that that first reading in the Easter season is chapter 10. But if we go back to chapter 1, we find there is an overlap. There's an overlap with the Gospel of Luke, which is not surprising. Luke 24, 51. Jesus was taken up, rather like Elijah, taken up into heaven. And he's, as we just saw, he has said to his disciples, I am sending upon you what the Father has promised. I'm sending to you the promise of the Father. And you are to be witnesses. You are to go out and preach. Now, when we go to Acts chapter 1, we find in verse 9, that, uh, well, first of all, Jesus has said in verse 8, you will receive power, the power of the Holy Spirit. In the gospel, it was the promise of the Father. Now it's the power of the coming Holy Spirit. And then you will be my witnesses. Witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then, verse 9, he was lifted up while they looked on and the cloud took him out of their sight. We can recall uh, the similarity there with Luke and other Gospels have different ways of marking the ending of the appearances of the risen Jesus. Now, of course, the account, the fuller story, if you like, of the ascension which we have there in chapter 1 of Acts, is held over until the Feast of the Ascension, 40 days after Easter. Just as the account of Pentecost, which we'll look at in a moment in chapter 2, that's not going to be read in our liturgy, obviously, until the Feast of Pentecost. But let's have a brief look at those events. After the Ascension, let's look at what comes between them, really. We have that account of the ascension of Jesus being taken up. And then chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. The 11. Of course, Judas is not with them 
anymore. There they were in the upper room at prayer. And we have the list given and obviously marking, noticing that Judas is no longer there. And then in verse 14, with one heart, it's the Greek word homothumadon, with one heart, with one mind, it's going to be found various points in the Acts of the Apostles to speak of the, the harmony among these followers of Jesus. There they were, with one heart, persevering in prayer, together with the women and with Mary, the mother of Jesus. So a very extraordinary and important presence of Mary with those apostles and with his brothers. So that reading, of course, will be something that will figure in the lectionary in the run-up to Pentecost. As will, of course, the story of the election of Matthias to replace Judas. They need to be twelve. Why do they need to be twelve? As there are twelve tribes of Israel, there are twelve apostles of the Lord. Twelve people who found this new Israel, this fulfilment of Israel. And Peter uh, is the spokesman, obviously, for this. Uh, he recounts how uh, Judas uh, died. Uh, if we look at uh, verse 20, or rather before that, verse 18 of chapter 1, as you know, he bought a plot of land with the money he was paid for his crime. He fell headlong and burst open and all his entrails poured out. This became known to everyone living in Jerusalem. Now, this conflicts with the story in Matthew 27 that Matthew inserts into the Passion story of the death of Judas by hanging. The figure of Judas both horrifies and fascinates. We have two different accounts. He came to a sad and tragic end. Was it by his own hand or was it by some kind of uh, devastating sickness? There is um, an ongoing interest in Judas. And this was resurrected um, a few years ago with the publication of the second century Gospel of Judas. This is a Gnostic Gospel. This is not in the New Testament, of course, in which this reflection on what Judas did and that Judas actually enables Jesus to give himself, enables the uh, Jesus to go to his death and therefore he's enabling our salvation, he's enabling the redemption. Very interesting reflections go on and I think today we would be thinking what a tragic figure um, not simply one to be dismissed, but perhaps to be understood. There we are. The focus is not going to be on Judas. It's going to be on someone to be chosen to take his place. 
And Peter says, someone who from the beginning uh, was with us, from the baptism of John until the day Jesus was taken up from us, we've got to appoint someone. There are two candidates and they draw lots as if it's God's choice. It's not a democratic vote. And Matthias, of whom then nothing more is heard in the Acts of the Apostles, Matthias is chosen as the replacement. And then we move swiftly, chapter 2, into the account of Pentecost. Pentecost... um, The feast, 50 days after the Passover, seven weeks after Passover. It's another Jewish pilgrimage feast. So once again, Jerusalem would be full of pilgrims, as is noted um, later on in, in this account. You might say, well, is this uh, somehow, how is this linked to the concluding appearances of Jesus in John's Gospel, the text that we we read on uh, the second Sunday of Easter always, and Jesus comes on the evening of that first day, and among other things, he says, peace be with you, I'm sending you as the Father sent me, and then he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. So for John's Gospel, the Holy Spirit is the gift of Easter, the gift of the risen Christ. So what then is this? Did the apostles have to wait for 50 days? Or was this rather an event which became rather public because it was them finally receiving the courage and embracing the courage by the power of the Spirit to go out and talk about Jesus? That is Luke's Uh, chronology. So we have the 40 days leading to the ascension and the 10 days uh, to Pentecost, which obviously form the basis for our liturgical uh, celebrations. So this is an account of preaching to Jews and proselytes, as it says, from all over, all those uh, names of different parts of the ancient world. Uh, And then Jews and proselytes alike. Proselytes were those who were becoming, who were joining the Jewish faith, who were not born Jews. And the text tells us of a rushing wind, something like a rushing wind filling the house, and something like tongues as if of fire. Remember, This is common in biblical visions that things are compared to something that that we might be able to grasp. It was like a wind. It was like fire. Remember that uh, the fire that there are, there's there's connections here with the giving of the law um, in in Exodus. So the fire is present in 19, Exodus 19, 18. And uh, lightning and the... So this is the feast of the giving of the law 50 days after Passover, known also as the feast of uh, weeks. Um, Links also with the grain harvest. But I think the, the major thing here is the giving of the law. So we have here a giving of the spirit, the spirit that brings fulfillment of the law.
so the consequences of of this event are that the apostles led by peter go out to preach we are thinking well the spirit was around earlier the spirit will return well we'll read how peter is filled with the spirit chapter 4 verse 8 well here how the house shook when the where the disciples were gathered in chapter 4 verse 31 sometimes called the second pentecost a more sort of domestic pentecost and then when we come to chapter 10 and peter uh, visiting the house of cornelius again the holy spirit is present so i think uh, the temptation liturgically said, well, this is the coming of the Holy Spirit, and forget that the Holy Spirit is active in the church from the very beginning and continues to be active. Some And, and the different ways in which the Spirit is present, uh, that it can be private, can be an individual, it can be something very public. So all this material relating to the Ascension and to Pentecost is... Uh, these are readings that we'd have as we approach Ascension, as we go the time between Ascension and Pentecost. But in our reading of the Acts of the Apostles, which is every day uh, of the Easter season, we begin with Peter's speech, parts of Peter's speech. Um, at Pentecost. Now, one of the features of the Acts of the Apostles, one third of the Acts of the Apostles in, in the quantity of verses, is dedicated to speeches, more than 20 speeches. The, the greatest ones will be Peter and Paul. There's a great speech also, which we'll see uh, about uh, Stephen. Speeches raise... A critical issue. The issue, obviously, there's someone writing it down. And this is, uh, uh, we, can, we can gain insight into this by uh, considering histories of the time, the Greek histories, particularly the great uh, Greek historian Thucydides. And I remember somebody said, well, it was Thucydides who wrote about the Peloponnesian Wars. It was Thucydides said, well, if I don't know what he said, I will write down what he should have said, what he would have said, what he ought to have said. And in some ways we can take that on board when we're thinking, well, how do we get these speeches? What did Peter proclaim um, at that time? And one of the things that you will notice reading through this is the use of the scriptures, the use of the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. There is a very long quotation when Peter starts in chapter 2. Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them. And uh, then he says, this is fulfilling what the prophet Joel proclaimed. I shall pour out my spirit on all humanity and they will prophesy and I will show portents. So um, one of the features of these speeches is the insertion of scriptural quotations. It can happen again and again. 
another element which might suggest to us these are speeches which are composed uh, to represent what Peter stands for, what, uh, how Peter would proclaim uh, the gospel. Uh, and then he goes on, and just as we saw with Cornelius, the essence of the preaching is going to be about Jesus, but above all, about his death and resurrection. This man, who was handed over to you in the set plan and foreknowledge of God, you took and had crucified and killed by the hands of men outside the law. That's chapter 2, verse 23. But God raised him up, having freed him from the pangs of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And then he launches into another quotation, this time what uh, for David says of him in Psalm 16. Uh, you will not abandon my soul to Hades. So the speech is well composed. It has as its central feature the kerygma, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And also it, they very often will have quotations from the scriptures. Um, he carries on, if we go to verse uh, 32, God, this Jesus God raised to life, and we are witnesses of this. We are all witnesses. Another quotation, Psalm 110, and then his climax, the whole house of Israel. So you Jews, he's speaking to Jews, and isn't that important? You know, when Paul goes preaching as the apostle of the Gentiles, he always goes first to the Jews. And this great Pentecost, the audience are Jews, Jews and proselytes who've come for the feast. And so Peter concludes by saying, the whole house of Israel can know for certain that God has made him Lord Curios and Christ Christos, this Jesus whom you crucified. Curios, the title given to God. Right? So he's revealed as being the Lord and the Christ, the Messiah, the one that you crucified. The following verses, and we arrived in chapter 2, verse 37. They were cut to the heart and they said, what are we to do? What are we to do? Ti poesomen. It's quite remarkable that if you go to chapter 3 of Luke, um, the people who come to John the Baptist, the different groups coming, uh, and they all say to John the Baptist, ti poesomen. What are we to do? It's no good hearing the gospel. And she said, well, what am I to do? That's our reaction when we hear. And Peter says, uh, repent, metanoia, change your lives, and be baptised 
in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. The promise is for you and your children and for those who are far away, for all those whom the Lord is calling. Now this is packed into that verse. There is the plan of the Acts of the Apostles for you and your children, for the Jews, for those in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, but then for those whom the Lord is calling from those who are far away. Uh, the gospel will be brought by both Peter, but above all by Paul, to the ends of the earth. And the consequence, verse 41, on that day about 3,000 people were added to the to their number. Concluding chapter 2, we have one of the great summaries that Luke gives about the life of the church. And he talks about the fidelity of those believers. There are four things to which they remain faithful. The teaching, the didache, of the apostles, the koinonia, the community, what we also call fellowship, the coming together, the sharing together, and then the breaking of bread, classis to artu, the breaking of bread, that ancient name for Eucharist, used by Paul, 1 Corinthians ten sixteen, the bread that we break, and finally, the prayers. It is a praying community. And we'll see that so often in uh, Acts. So the fourfold fidelity, the teaching of the apostles, the community, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And then just to affirm that koinonia, all the believers were united and owned everything in common. They sold the goods and possessions and divided the proceeds to all according to what each one needed. Now this is right from the very start. They take up this social involvement. We share what we have with those in need. And then in verse 46, each day with one heart, says that, Phrase we had in one fourteen, homo thumadon, one heart, one mind. Day by day, they went to the temple. They went faithfully to the temple. Remember that at the end of the Gospel of Luke, we have uh, when Jesus is um, has ascended into heaven, the final verse. Final two verses of the Gospel of Luke, 52 and 53 in chapter 24. They worshipped him and went back to Jerusalem with great joy and they were continually in the temple praising God. I mean, that tells us something about continuity. You know, the Christian faith was born out of the Jewish faith. It was a con continuity. The preaching, the first preaching, the Pentecost preaching is to these Jews uh, who are present from all over but have come for the Feast of Pentecost. 
But at the same time, there is this, already we're seeing this sense of outreach to those who are further away. So there's a very positive picture given here of the, of the community. They met in their houses for the breaking of bread. They share, they shared their food with glad and generous hearts. Chapter 2, verse 46, praising God and approved by all, day by day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. So it's a very uh, positive picture. And I think, as with the Gospels, you know, we need to notice in the Gospels, the, because Jesus was crucified, executed, we tend to say, well, he was rejected. But the seeds of uh, faith there which grow, people who did actually uh, believe in Jesus. You look at the frequent references when in John's Gospel we're approaching the Passion story and says, many came to believe in him. The same is true now. Many came to believe in him. And it's above all, as we'll see, the religious authorities and then in connivance with the political authorities who will see Jesus and now see Christian faith uh, as a threat. So we've looked at the first two chapters and I will just take a break now and, and move on and look at some more. Ah. 